So this class is called The Life of Prayer. Amen. We, the first night together, we saw that Jesus taught the disciples what prayer was not. And he really told them to get rid of any kind of false religious concept of prayer, you know. And, um, and then he, to teach them how to pray, uh, in Luke chapter 11, Jesus gave them four principles of prayer, or what I called the four legs of prayer. Why? Because just like any chair, it has four legs so that you can be stable. You can, that chair will hold your weight and it will support you. It will hold you and it will be stable, right? And a prayer that is based on those four principles will be a fruitful prayer life, a stable prayer. And when you pray, you will see things happen. Amen. And we discovered in Luke chapter 11, what is the first thing that Jesus told them to do in prayer? A relation, your prayer has to be based on a relationship with God. And in order to have a relationship, Jesus told them that they should look at God not as a judge, but as a father. And he even told them, you need to call God Abba. And here in Amaric, it's the same word, is it not? Abba meaning daddy. You see, when you go to Israel to the marketplace and you listen to little children calling their father, they will say, Abba, Abba, Abba. It's a very familiar term. Amen. It's not, oh, father. No, it's daddy, daddy. And so Jesus was teaching them that they need to build, to have a relationship. And in order to do so, they first had to see God as their father. Amen. And then we talked, if you remember, the last class together, in order to have and see God as a father, we needed to get rid of all that wrong concept that we had of God, that we, and we saw that through the law, people perceived God no longer as a father, but as a judge. And you remember, we looked at 6,000 years of humanity. And we saw that the first 2,400 years, God, even though men were, were in sin, sin was in the world, but, but we saw that Romans 5.13 said that God did not impute sin to man. In another word, he did not uh, 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 judge people for their sins. And we looked at the life of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of them were not perfect people. But they had one thing in common is their heart. They loved God. Their heart was towards God. And God was able, not only he didn't judge them, but God blessed them. And we can see that all through time God was looking for people who would not be afraid of him, people who would not be afraid to come close to him, people with whom he could have a relationship. And we saw that all in the Old Testament, Abraham was called a friend of God. And even Abraham even dared to confront God and tell him, would you judge the unrighteous and the righteous together? And, and, so, and God was not, you know, offended God did not rebuke him, 
but uh, you know, on the contrary, God was blessed to have somebody who was a friend who was not afraid to talk to him. Amen. And that is the beauty of friendship. You're not afraid to confront your friend with the truth. Amen. We see that Noah was a friend of God. He knocked, walked with God, and he found and discovered that God was good, that God was not to be feared and be afraid of, that you could come close to God. And he discovered, and we see in Hebrew chapter 11, that he knocked, discovered what God was good, that when he talked to God, God loved him, and that every time he came close to God, God blessed him. That God was a rewarder. Amen. And so we, we saw that, that God was not an angry, judgmental, a, what I call an excessive, compulsive perfectionist. You know what a perfectionist is. It's somebody with whom, I mean, everything has to be so perfect that if you do one step aside, they'll get mad at you. They'll get upset with you. Amen. And they'll get angry. But God is not like that. And we saw that it is through the law that God was perceived for 1,600 years. God's image and God's heart was lost because God saw the law and all they could see was God as a judge. Of course, you know, you'd have to go back to your notes of last week to find out why did God bring the law. It was not because God wanted to judge and punish but he did so to guide people to the Savior, to show them you are guilty. You see, you cannot be righteous on your own. You are guilty, but there is a Savior coming, and his name is Jesus Christ. I will come and save you of your sin. And then we saw that from Jesus until today, the same thing, 2 Corinthians 5.19 says that God does not impute our sins. Why? Not because sin is not important, but because all of our sins, all the wrath, all the judgment, all the curse was put where? On Jesus. It was paid. And it means if it was paid, the price was paid, then you don't have to pay it again. Amen? Hallelujah. So now we saw that, and you remember, and let's go back to it in Luke chapter 9. In Luke chapter 9, verse 33 through 55, we see that when Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, he had to stop in Samaria. But of course there was a... Uh, a prejudice or a little conflict between the, the Jews of Samaria and the Jews of Jerusalem. They did not like each other. And when the Jews of Samaria found out that Jesus was going to Jerusalem, they said, uh-uh, you cannot spend the night here. We don't want you here. And then James and John, who were called the sons of thunder, apparently they must have had some kind of a temper, they said, Jesus, do you want us to call fire judgment from heaven to consume them, to fry them like Elijah did in the old covenant? Amen. And what did Jesus say? Jesus turned to them and it says he rebuked them. 
And he said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are made of. You are of. Why? Because the spirit of God, the heart of the Father, is not judgment, but it is grace, mercy, love. That is the true nature of God. That is the heart of the Father. Amen. He had to bring judgment on the people of Israel for 1,600 years. But we saw out of a whole 6,000 years, for 4,400 years, compared to 1,600, God showed mercy and grace on people and on you and I. Because that is the heart of the Father. And that is one of the reasons Jesus came. Jesus came, he told, he, he, he told, he said, listen to this. Hallelujah. Let me turn to, to it really quickly. Jesus says in, in um, John chapter 1, verse 18, it says, no one, how many people is that? No one, not one person, has ever seen God at any time. Do you mean to say that Moses didn't really see the true God? That Abraham didn't really see the true God? That's what Jesus said. He says, no one has ever seen the Father at any time but the begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. He has shown the Father. That's what you see. And in Hebrew chapter 1, in Hebrew chapter 1, Hebrew chapter 1 verse 1 through 3, it says that in, at God at various times and in various ways, God spoke in time past to the fathers, by the prophet, but in these last days, God spoke to us and revealed himself to us, really, by his son, Jesus Christ, whom he has appointed heir of all things. And he says, verse 3, who Jesus Christ being the brightness of his glory and the express image, or you could say the fingerprint, the Exact reflection, representation, the exact image, copy of the Father. So, you see, to really know what the Father is like, in order to know Him, so we don't have to be afraid to approach Him. You see, you cannot approach somebody and you cannot open your heart to somebody you don't know and you don't trust. So you see, the more you know God, who he really is, the easier it is to trust him. And the more you can trust him, the easier it is it is to come to him, to talk to him, to open your heart to him and have an intimate relationship with God. And we find out that Jesus said, he told Peter, uh, uh, Philip, if you have seen me, Philip, you have seen the Father. And what kind of God was Jesus? What kind of God was Jesus? Amen. Yes, thank you very much. He was full of grace and mercy. You know, the Bible says that by Moses came the law, but with Jesus came grace and truth. 
You see, because Jesus said, I have come to show you exactly what the Father is like. Yes, you did not. You see, the Jews, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Jews, uh, at the end of the 1600 years, at the end of the law, they didn't know the Father anymore. Through the law, they had lost the heart of the Father. You see, they didn't know all they were afraid of God. You know, they, and, and through the law, the people did not know God anymore. And Jesus, that's one of the reasons he came. He said, I've got to show you the Father. And I've got to show you the heart, the true heart of the Father. Amen. And so if you look in the Word of God, in order to have a relationship with God who loves you, because you know, he made you sons. You know, the Bible says you're not even a friend of God. You definitely no more a servant. He says, you are no longer a servant, but now you are a son. Because God wants to be not, he doesn't want to be, he doesn't want to be a judge like he was under the law. He wants to be a father again. And, and, and in order for God to be a father and you a son, you've got to know the father. Amen. And know that he is a good father. You know, some of you might have had bad fathers. Some of you, your father might have beat you up. Some of you, your father might have abused you with the, his words. Some of you, your father might have raped you or might have, you know, never been there. Never provided even for you. Maybe your father was good, but always absent, always working, a workaholic. You know what I mean? There is different ways you have different fathers. All of you in this room, you might have a different image of what a father is like. But we've got to know who the father of father is. And he's a good father. And you could, you know, if you go with me, if you go with me to 1 Corinthians 13, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, hallelujah, we, we know this script, this, this verse, 1 Corinthians 13, hallelujah. Verse 4 through 7. How many of you were not here last Friday night? Anybody was not here last Friday night? Oh, you missed half of your life. Didn't they? Hallelujah. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 4 through 7 is a description of what love is. But how many of you, have you read in the first John that the apostle John says, God is love. And so if God is love, all the qualification of love are part of God's character and nature, is it not? And when you read the 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the chapter of love, then you could really replace the word love with the word God. And you find out what kind of father he is. Let's look at it together. It says love is kind and patient. I'm going to read it from actually, I'm going to read it from the um, amplified version. Love endures long and is patient and kind. 
Love is never envious, nor boils over with jealousy. It's not boastful or proud, and it doesn't display itself heartily. It is not conceited, arrogant, inflated with pride. It's not rude. It does not act rudely. God, love does not insist on its own right or its own way. Love is not self selfish. It is not touchy or fretful or resentful. It does not keep records of any wrongs. It does not rejoice at sin when someone falls into sin. Said, oh, look, he sinned. It makes me look better. That's what it means. But rejoice when right and truth prevail. Love bears up under anything and everything. It's ready to believe the best of every person. It's hope a fadeless under all circumstances. And it endures everything. Let me read it in the Message Bible. Love never gives up. Love cares more for others than for self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't strut, whatever that means. Love is not proud. Love does not force itself on others or is not rude. Love doesn't say me first. Love doesn't get angry. Love doesn't keep record of the wrongs done by others. Love puts up with anything, trust for every, everything, always looks for the best, never looks back, but keeps going to the end. And you can replace the word God by the word love. And you could say, Let me get another version. You could say God is patient. God is kind. God is not jealous. God doesn't, you know, boast or is not proud and arrogant. God is not rude. God doesn't think of himself first. He's not selfish. God is not irritable or does not get angry easily. God doesn't keep records of wrong. Some people think, you know, when they approach the Father, that God keeps a list of all the wrongs they've ever done. And we bring them and say, you remember what you did last, last week? You remember? You, you asked me to forgive you. That's the tenth time you asked me to forgive you for the same thing. Who do you think I am? Well, God doesn't keep a record of your wrongs. Amen. God is not irritable. Love never stops. God never stops being patient. He never stops believing the best of you. He never stops hoping the best about you. And God never gives up on you. Hallelujah. That's who God the Father is. And you know, and if God is asking us to love others, don't you think that God is going to love us this way and be that to us? That who God is. 
Amen. God is good. Here are some verses for you. Psalm 34 verse 8. Psalm 34 verse 8. Psalm 34 verse 8. Say, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Now, you see, it's easy to say, God is good all the time, yeah, in church. (laughs) But what about when tragedy hits your house? What about when your four-year-old little baby uh, child just dies of cancer? It's at that time when tragedy hits, when problems come, when the worst comes to your house. It, it is at that moment that you must know that you know that you know that God is good. And that God who is good is not the author of that problem or that tragedy. You know, because I meet a lot, I, I meet a lot of people. And sometimes when people, you know, uh, something bad has happened in, the, in their life, you know what they will say? Why did God let that happen? Why did God, some will say, why did God take my child? What are they saying? They're saying God is really not good. Why would he have done that? As if it is God who killed the child. As if it is God who brought the tragedy to your house. You see, it is at that moment because people have a concept that God is so sovereign that anything that he does, he just... You know, if it happens, it's because it must have been the will of God. But you and I know that there are laws that God puts in place, like the law of gravity. And if you break the law of gravity, what happens? You fall. You could say, well, I fell from the, the, the building and I fell down. Why did God kill me? No, God didn't kill you, just broke, broke a law. You know what I mean? And some, some things, God has set some laws, His Word, the law of faith, the, His Word. And God has put His sovereignty in His Word. And sometimes when we break His Word, or when we don't walk according to the laws of faith, what happens? Just like the law of gravity. Things happen and we don't understand. And people are quick to want to accuse God. Why did you do it? Or why did you let it happen? No, no. God didn't let anything happen. Or God didn't do it. But you've broken some laws. And you might not be aware of it. But that's what happened. Don't look at me so holy. <laughs> but it is true. And But you know, it is in this time that we must know that we know that we know that God is good. So therefore, God could not be the author of that tragedy. You know, like I said before, I was in India and I met a young man who had fallen from a cliff and broke his back and ended up paraplegic in a wheelchair. And you know what? He, he, when I say that it was the will of God for him to be healed, he got upset at me. He got very aggressive. And he says, no, God is the one who did this to me. Because God had a purpose in it. God is teaching me something. God is being glorified through my life right now. That's what he said. But no, no, you see, when you know that God is good, you know that God would never do such a thing. You were just stupid and, and fell from a cliff. 
and you broke a law. Amen. But it's true anyway. God is always good. And you know, I always like to say, when a situation happens, I look at it. Because I hear it all the time. Things, bad things happen and people said, well, it must have been the will of God. It happened. It must, God must have a purpose in it. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I look at it and I said, no, that's not how God works. I put my, what I call my John 10, 10 glasses. You know what John 10, 10 says? For the, for the devil came to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus said, I have come. And you know that Jesus is the express image of the Father, is the exact replica and image of God. And he says, I have come to give you life and life abundantly. So if you look at a situation and there there is destruction, still kill, destroy, then you know where it's, com- it's coming from. If it's good, then you know where it's coming from. And you know I have good news for you. The devil came to kill, steal, and destroy. God came to give life and abundance, and they have not traded spaces. They have not said, oh, devil, let me take your place. No, they are still in the same place. God is God. The devil is a devil. God is a good God. The devil is a bad devil. And they have not switched places. Amen. God, and we've got to know that God is good. All the time. Psalm 119 verse 68. Psalm 135 verse 3. Nahum chapter 1 verse 7. You know, in James chapter 1, you can write this down and look at those scriptures later. But James chapter 1, James chapter 1, verse 12 through 17, or verse 17, it says, every good, my dear brothers and sisters, don't be fooled. Don't be mistaken. That's what James says in verse 16. He says, every good and every perfect gift comes from above, from the Father, in whom there is no shadow, no changing, no turning. You know what that means? There is not even, God is light. There is no little shadow. There is not even any hint of darkness in him. He is pure light. Therefore, he is good. And there is nothing on him and he doesn't change. There is nothing on, in him that is not good. He is good. Amen. Matthew nineteen seventeen says, No one is good but God. No one is good but God. Amen. God is not only love, is not only good, but God is merciful. God, we saw, he is a grace of, he's a God of grace and mercy. God is merciful. Let's look at it together. Psalm 86. Psalm 86. Verse 15. But you, O God, are a God full of compassion and gracious. What is grace? It's God's unmerited love and favor and acceptance of you, independently of your behavior. 
God is full of compassion, compassion and gracious, patient and abundant in mercy and truth. Hallelujah. That's God, full of mercy, amen, and truth. Psalm 103. Psalm 103, verse 8 through 13. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. Now, King David wrote this. You remember King David was under the law, right? And during the law, you could see the anger of God against sin, correct? But you notice what uh, David said. He said, you're not going to be angry with us forever. You will not strive with us nor keep your anger forever. You, even David, under the law, declares, God, you have not dealt with us according to our sins. You have not punished us according to our iniquities. David is saying, a man under the law, he said, God, even though you have a right to punish us and judge us under the law, you, did, you even showed us mercy. You didn't give us everything we deserved. You didn't treat us according to the, 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 our sin and our iniquities. You see, that's what David said. And David knew that God is so good. You know when David sinned and messed up and God told David, he said, David, I'm going to have to judge you because you're under the law. I'm going to have to punish you. But he said, David, I tell you what, I'm going to let you choose your punishment. And he gave him three different options. And what did David say? David said, God, I would, rather, I would rather fall in the hands of God than in the hands of man. You know why? Because he knew that God is more merciful and better and is more uh, 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 good than any man on earth. Mm -hmm. and, and, and David, a man under the law, you know why God called him a man after his own heart? Because David knew God's heart. He knew that God was good, that God was merciful, and that God was not hungry for judgment. But God was looking for an opportunity to show grace and mercy. Amen. And listen what he says in verse 11. As high as the heaven, uh, high above the earth, so great is the mercy towards those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, how far is that? It's pretty far. They never meet. They'll never come close to each other. Amen. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgression from us. And as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. The word Pities here, the word pities, what does it mean in the, in, the, in the Hebrew? The word pities in the Hebrew means to hold close, 
to caress, to com comfort. It means to, um, to love, to cherish, and love deeply. So here, what is David talking about? And look at it. He said, as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For God knows our frame. And he remembers that we are dust. What does it mean here? It means when we sin, when we fall. God is like a father that pities his child. Have you ever seen a little child that runs, falls, hurt his knees? What does he do? He runs to daddy. And he said, daddy, daddy, I hurt myself. How does, what does the father do if he's a good father or the mother? Will take his child close to him and comfort him and says, oh, no problem. Daddy is here. And he'll kiss him and caress him and comfort him and hold him to give him to comfort him and make him feel better. That's what he says. As a father will comfort a child when he falls. So will God comfort those when they fall? Because God remembers that we are just dust. He knows our friend. He knows that even though in our heart we want to do right, but we have to deal with our flesh. And sometimes we make a mistake. Have you ever seen, you see, God knows that we, as we are born again, God knows that we want to do right. We want to do his will. We want to learn to walk by faith. We want to learn to walk holy of, you know, of him, worthy of him. But God knows that sometimes we're going to make some mistakes and we're going to fall. It's like, have you ever seen a little one-year-old child that is learning to walk? Have you, how many of you are parents? Raise your hand if you're a parent. Only one person? You're a parent? Nope, no parent. Anybody's parent? You parent? You're a parent. We all have singles, just a few parents. How old is your child? Oh, so you're not a parent. So if you don't have a child, you're not a parent. How many? So who has a child? Please, somebody. How old is your child? Four. So at one point, he was one years old. And at one point, he started to learn to walk, right? And you know what happened? I guarantee you, tell me if I'm wrong. The day when your child started to walk his first steps, you know, until then he was in the crib. Then he started to crawl. And the first time when he started to go on his legs, what happened? You know, his legs looked like plastic, like, like that. And he started to put one foot in front of the other. And then he go, whoa, one foot in front of the other. And then what happened? But daddy was right there looking at him. And all of a sudden, daddy says, mommy, mommy, come here. Look, look, he's running to walk. He's doing his first step, calling everybody. And look, and daddy's looking. He's doing his first step. And oh, daddy's so proud. Mommy, look, that's my son. Look, he's learning to walk. And daddy, and when the little child started learning to walk, and he, what does he do? His legs start to go bending, and he falls. Now, what does the father do? Does the father just correct him and gets mad at him? 
No, the father is so excited, so proud, because his son is wanting to walk, that he goes, he picks him up, and he says, okay, okay, go here again, try again, come to daddy, come to daddy, come here, come here, come here, come here, you can do it, good job, good job, do it, come on, come, come, come. And the father is so proud, am I correct? The Father is so proud, so excited. That's how God is with us. When you become born again, God knows your frame. God knows that you are but dust, that even though you are born again, you've still got to deal with the flesh. And God knows. And when you're starting to learn to walk, the walk, the Christian walk, yeah, you're going to get a little shaky. And then you're going to fall. But God is not going to be there to, to get mad at you and be severe. It will be there so proud of you and say, come on, son, get back up. Come on, come, get back up. You can do it. Come on, get back up. One more step. You can do it. Don't quit. Come on, come to daddy. One more step. One more step. That's what this scripture is talking about. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. You see, those who fear him, it means those whose heart has been renewed. Those whose heart, like Romans 7.22 says, that we delight to do the will of God according to the inward man. You see, in your heart, you want to walk right. But sometimes you fall, you're a little shaky. But God is not, he's a good father. And he looks at you to encourage you, to help you to get back up and walk forward. Amen? God is merciful, full of mercy. Look in John chapter 8, John chapter 8, verse 3. We see God full of mercy, full of compassion. We, Jesus said, if you see me, you see the Father. And you remember when the religious people, you see, religious people always, they love to accuse, they love to judge, they love to point the finger. That's a religious spirit. And when you see the Pharisees who were trying to trap Jesus, what happened? They found a woman caught in adultery, slept with another man who was not her husband. And so they found her, took her, and threw her in front of Jesus' feet. And they said that woman was caught in adultery. What do you say? You see, they thought, they had him. They thought they had trapped him. Because if he judged her, then all the people that knew him as a God of grace would go, wait a second, we thought you were loving and full of mercy, and you judged that. And if he didn't judge that woman, then they would have a right to accuse him because they would say, according to the law, she's guilty, she must be stoned and killed. So they thought, we've trapped him. For good. And so when they said she sinned, she's deserving of death. What do you say, Jesus? Jesus stayed silent, gave them a chance to back out. And then they went, she's guilty, she must die. What do you say? So then Jesus just took down, starting to write in the sand. And he said, He who is without sin, let him throw the first rock. What did he write on the sand? We're not totally sure. But I have a little, you know, my imagination. I think that somehow he must have written the sins of those people standing with a stone. <laughs> you know, Levi, 
he cheated, he, he, he stole from the treasury. Oh, Reuben, he did this and he did that. Oh, and, and he, he one by one, that's what I think. Because what happened when all of a sudden they dropped their stone one by one, the oldest to the youngest, nobody was left. What wisdom. And then finally Jesus said, woman, where are your accusers? They're all gone. And what not, here is Jesus said, neither do I judge you and accuse you, but go and sin no more. God, Jesus, the only one who had a legal right to stone her and judge her, and he would have been justified. People would have applauded him because said, you know, he, that's the law. He observed the law. Even though the law said she could be stoned, Jesus said, I have not come. I have come. He's a God of grace and mercy and full of compassion. And he said, neither I am not going to put the law on you, but I'm going to came to give you grace and mercy. That's why Jesus came. With Moses came the law, but with Jesus came grace and truth. He had a right to stone her, but yet he did not exercise that right. But on the contrary, he extended mercy and grace. Because God is merciful. That is the heart of God. That is the heart of the Father. He is love. He is good. He is merciful. Amen. God is faithful. God is faithful. What does it mean to be faithful? To be faithful means we can count on you. You are dependable. Do you know what that means? If you give a promise, you keep it. I can count. If you tell me something, I know you're going to do it because you are dependent, dependable. I can count on you. That's what faithful means. Do you understand? Yes. yes. Some of you are looking at me like with a strange face. So I thought maybe you're not understanding what being faithful or dependable means. Amen. And God is dependable. When God says something, he does it. If God promises something, he does it. He keeps his word. Because the minute God breaks his word, all of the universe will destroy itself. Because the Bible says that all of the universe is holding with his word. So God is dependable and faithful. You see, we must remember that. When you exercise your faith you see you might be needing healing and by faith you said I received my healing I understand that healing was given to me by the stripes of Jesus Christ and so you believe and you receive according to Mark eleven twenty four. but then from the time you believe you receive until you see the manifestation there might be a little time and it seems like it's taking time and it's taking forever and it's in that time that you must know, no, no, God is not going to abandon me. God is faithful. If God has told me that by the stripes of Jesus I was given healing, then it is true. God is faithful. He cannot lie and he cannot break his word. From the time you believe until the time you see the manifestation, like Sarah Hebrew 11, 11, from the time she was given the promise until the time she saw the fulfillment of the promise. There were quite a few years, 13 years. But you know, it said that during that time, she received strength 
because she considered God faithful. It means that even though she couldn't see the promise yet, even though she couldn't feel anything in her body yet, she said, it doesn't matter. I know God is faithful. I can count on him. He is dependable. Hallelujah. God is faithful. 2 Thessalonians 3.3. 2 Thessalonians 3.3. 3. But the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. When you feel like you are going through the valley of the shadow of death, that's when you need to know God is faithful. He's not going to abandon me. He's not going to give up on me. He's not going to let me go. And that's what Psalm 23 says. The Lord is my shepherd. Even though I might walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I don't feel no evil. For God is with me. He's faithful. And can I just add a little something there? Because some people have taught that it's God sometime. That will take you in the valley of the shadow of death. God will take you through the mountains and through the valley. God will take you through trials and through a problem. And if you look in the Psalm 23, it says that God is the good shepherd. He makes you to lie down by green pastures. He leads you by the still waters. He guides you into the path of righteousness. He does that. But when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, do you see a difference here? God guides you by the still waters and the green pastures and in the path of righteousness. But sometimes through our own doing, because of mistakes we made, because of bad decisions we make, or maybe because we have a testimony from a for Christ, and the enemy doesn't like you and attacks you, you end up in the valley of the shadow of death. But it's not God taking you there. Thank you for that one amen. <laughs> God is not taking you in the valley of shadow of death, but his promise is that he is faithful. When you get into the valley of the shadow of death, then God will still be with you and God will take you through. Hallelujah. I know that doesn't make religious people happy, but it is true. That is our covenant of peace with Christ. He is the good shepherd. Would any good shepherd want to take his sheep next to the wolves? A good shepherd is going to try to protect his sheep from the wolves. He's not going to take them close to a, to a, a, a hole. He's going to try to keep them away and protect them and feed them and strengthen them and help them. That is a good shepherd. Glory to God. God is good. God is faithful. And God is a giver. And he's a generous giver, a liberal giver. Amen. Amen. You remember what Enoch said, Hebrew 11. He says, for God is a rewarder of those who seek him. How many of you seek God? 
How many of you want to draw close to God? God, every time you come, you can expect, like he knock, that he's a rewarder. Amen. And he doesn't reward you with sickness and problems. He rewards you with good. Please smile at me, would you? <laughs> Hallelujah. Hebrew 11.6, God is a rewarder. 1 Timothy 6.17. 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 6.17. 1 Timothy 6.17. Are you there? Glory to God. That is a small Bible, if I've ever seen one. 1 Timothy 6.17 says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be proud or haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God. Ooh, oh, I like that. Could we read that together? Who gives us all things Richly, all things for what? To enjoy. Now you notice, people will come and say, you see God says don't, he doesn't like rich people. God doesn't want people to be rich. Look at what he said. No, no, God is not against you being rich and prosperous, but he's against you trusting and putting your confidence and know your security in the money and the, and the riches. God, as long as you keep your trust in God, then God says you can have as much. All things richly to enjoy. But the minute you start putting your confidence and your trust in that money, that money becomes a trap. Do you remember when Jesus sent the disciples two by two, into the mission field. What did he first tell them? Don't take a tunic, two tunics, don't take a bag, don't take any money, go as you are. And people use that and say, you see, God doesn't want you. God wants you to have nothing. No, listen a second. Why did God send them in the mission field and told them not to take any money, not to take anything extra? And then they came back, he asked them, did you lack anything? Were you missing anything? And they said, no, Lord, we didn't. And then the next time he sent them, he said, now you can take an extra tunic. Now you can take your money bag. Now you can take what you need. You know, because they had learned the lesson of putting their trust, not in the things of the world, but in God. And once they learned the lesson, they could have. Amen. And so that's what God wants us to learn. That's what he says. Don't put your trust in money. You see, the Bible doesn't say money is the root of all evil. It doesn't say that. Many people quote it that way. But it says the love of money is the root of all evil. So we don't guard ourselves and keep ourselves from money. And try to live in, give a poverty vow. No, no, no. We make a trust vow not to put our trust in the money. 
Do you understand? Yes. Not to trust and have confidence and put our, 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 our trust in what we have, holding it tight. No, no. But God is a liberal giver. He's a rewarder. In, in, uh, you remember Romans 8.31, he says, If God gave you his only begotten son, is it not with him? Freely give you all things. God is not wanting to hold anything back from you. Glory to God. Amen. Second Corinthians 2. Second Corinthians chapter 2. Verse 12. First Corinthians, I believe, forgive me. First Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. You see, God is, many people see him as a, how would you call that, tight you know, reluctant to give. Because some people will say, you know, you've got to ask and keep on asking and keep on asking and keep on asking and keep on praying and keep on begging until finally God says, okay, I've had enough. They've asked long enough. I let go of a little bit. That's how God, people approach God in prayer, thinking somehow that God is kind of reluctant to give, reluctant to let go of what he has. But that's far, far from the truth. God, not only is he a generous giver, but he's already given everything to you before you ever ask, before you ever had a need. That's what Ephesians 1 verse 3 says, that God has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. In Ephesians 1, 11, it says, In Christ we have obtained an inheritance in the saints. Hallelujah. Amen. Because God is a generous giver. We've got to learn to be like Enoch. And approach the father like Enoch. Like a son. You remember what I said as a son? You go to your father's house. And you don't beg. You don't plead. You don't hesitate. You go and help yourself. Go and wear mama's clothes. Go and take daddy's car. Go and, you know, what's daddy's mine? What's in the fridge? I can have. Yes. Because you know you are a son and he's a father and your father loves you. And even though your father, as good as he's been, God is far better. And far more generous. He's never saying, you know, growing up, I was raised with the spirit of poverty. Because I was raised in a very poor family. I was the last of five children. I wore all of my sister's clothes. Never had any new clothes of my own. Maybe some of you can relate. And I would always hear, Mommy, could I have this? No, we can't afford it. Daddy, could I have this? I'd like to buy this. No, we can't afford it. That was all I heard. But you know God is not like that. You cannot say, God, I would like to. No, we can't afford it, son. 
That's not because God is limitless in his provision. And he's made everything available to you. And Jesus says, whatever you can believe. You see, it's by faith. If you can believe for it and have the faith for it, then you can have it. And Yonggi Cho, Yonggi Cho, do you, have you heard of Yonggi Cho? He's got the biggest church in the world. I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of people are in this church. But when he started, and he has a huge church, when he started exercising his faith, he believed God for a bicycle so he can go from place to place. And then because he, 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 he exercised his faith for a bicycle, then he was able to exercise his faith for more and for more to the point where he was able to believe God for a huge building to accommodate all those people. And as much as he could believe, as much God provided what he needed. God never said, okay, youngie, now you're asking for too much. You mean a big building? And you want what now? No, he can't. You're going to break the bank of heaven. No, God is not. He's a generous. And we've got to learn to know our Father as a generous giver. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. Oh, glory to God. I hope you have a better picture of who the Father is. Yes. That you are not a, a, afraid to approach Him. Yes. Even when you messed up. Yes. But on the contrary... Like David, you know that your father is so good that he's there, that you run to him, he's there to comfort you, to help you, to lift you up, to encourage you, to get out of whatever situation you're in. He's not there to put you down, he's there to lift you up. He's not, the Bible says, if God is for me, who can be against me? And that's how we got to see God. He's for me. No matter what happens in life, for the good, the bad, and the ugly, God is for me. And he's there to help me. And to lift me up. And to encourage me. And we saw God hopes the better in me. Believes the best in me. Hallelujah. Glory to God. So we saw that Jesus said, number one, to have a successful prayer life, you've got to learn to see God as your father. And I hope you're able to see God a little better as a father. No longer as a judge who is always inspecting you to kind of punish you or to kind of set the record straight and kind of be hard on you. No, no, God is a good father. Amen. And you know how he's going to dis discipline us? Do You know how God is going to punish us, disciplines us, rebuke us with his word. With the help of the Holy Spirit. And he does it in such a way. You see, the Holy Ghost showed me something the other day. When you know how gracious and good God is. How much he loves you no matter what. It frees you all of a sudden. You get in his presence. Who is full of love. Full of mercy. Full of grace. And it is in this place. Where you feel secure. Where you feel loved where you feel accepted. It is in this place where you can receive correction from the Father. And he doesn't do it in a harsh, mean way. He does it in a gentle, lifting you up. It's in this place when you come to him and he says, Son, you know, I don't think you should do that anymore. That's not good for you. I, you know, lying, you're better than that. I don't, you see what I mean? It's in this place of love 
and security where God with his word and with the Holy Spirit can correct you, can redirect you, can confront you. He can rebuke you. But it, you see, you are now able to receive it with that condemnation. All of a sudden, when you hear God correcting you and, and confronting you, he does it in such a way where it frees you. It, it, it gives you not only the, the, the desire to change, but the power to change and to redirect. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's how the Father will direct us, disciplines us, rebuke us, correct us. That's how he will do it. But first, he has established an atmosphere where you know you are loved. You know he wants the best for you. You know you are secure in his love. And then when he corrects you and rebukes you, you can receive it. Do you understand? Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. God is good. And so Jesus said, number one, your prayer has to be based on a relationship. And then number two, let's go back to Luke 11. In Luke 11, we are talking about the four pillars of prayer. Starting with verse 5. First, God, Jesus said, your relationship is based on a relationship. Get to know God as your father. And then Jesus gave them a parable. Let's read it together. And he said to them, which of you shall have a friend? Go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, Lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, Don't trouble me, the door is not shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. Jesus said, I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity, he will rise and give him he will rise and give him as many as he needs. So I say to you, ask, it will be given. Now here, why is Jesus giving this parable as he's trying to teach him prayer, how to pray, how to approach the Father? Here, Jesus is teaching them about understanding their righteousness. Jesus is teaching them, giving them a story to illustrate a point. To drive a point across, to accentuate a truth. And what is it that Jesus wants them to understand here? He's giving a story and saying, how many of you have a friend and you find out at midnight that you need some bread? And you go to your friend and knock at his door and ask him for help. And he says, ah, no, don't bother me. Anybody has a friend like this? Anybody has a friend like this? If you do, let me tell you a secret. He is not a friend. <laughs> and so here Jesus is not doing a comparison and comparing God to a so-called friend who would refuse help in time of need. He's making a contrast saying, even you, your friends wouldn't do that to you. If you have a friend, he's not going to say, don't bother me. No, no, if he is a friend, you know, I have 
very good friends. And my friends, it doesn't matter what time of the night. If I was, if I broke up in my car at three in the morning and I called my friend and I said, could you come and pick me up? I'm stranded. I'm broke. My car broke up and I'm by myself on the side. My friend, no matter what time of the day or night, she would leave everything she'd come to help me. That's what a friend is. A true friend, is it not? So here Jesus is saying, if you, even your friend, would, if you, uh, you had a need, he would not do that to you. How much more with God, your heavenly father, who is your father and you are his sons. And here he used the word, he said, your friend, that friend might refuse, somebody might refuse to help, but because of your importunity, he would get up and give you as much as you need. The word importunity here, it's the Greek word anaeida. Anaeida. And the word Anaeida, the word importunity, actually means boldness, a lack of shame. It means having, you know, there is a term in English, it means having the guts to do something. Do you understand what I mean by that? Having the boldness, the courage, having the guts to do something. A lack of shame. Here, what is Jesus talking about? He said, any friend might not get up to give you, a, a person might not get up to give you what you need, but because of your boldness, because you had the courage to come and knock at his door at midnight, because of your boldness, because of your assurance in them, they will get up and give you as much as you need. You know, I used to live in India. And there was part of the culture that I really liked. If anybody knocked at your door, even if you don't know them, they knock at your door and ask you for water, for something to, to drink, just because they had the importunity, the boldness to knock at your door, you would go, the culture said, you give to them. That's part of the Eastern culture. And here Jesus was saying, even if a stranger would knock at your door to ask for something, because of his boldness and his importunity, you would give to him. Amen. And so here Jesus is driving a point across. You see, some people have taught that God is kind of hesitant to give and help. And so he said, you know, if you knock at God's door and you ask him something, God might just said, you need to ask me a little more. Ask and keep on asking. Ask again. And if you ask for long enough, then God's going to say, lest they kind of weary me, I'm going to go and give it to them. That's what people have thought about God. And they thought what that parable meant. Because of their persistence. Because of them continually to knock at the door then finally God is going to open. Finally God is going to answer. But that's not what Jesus is teaching here. He's teaching the disciple about righteousness, about approaching God with a lack of shame. He's telling the disciple, when you approach the Father, 
knock at his door knowing that God is a good God. Now, let me ask you this. If your friend knocks at your door at midnight, why would he have the courage to knock at your door? Because he knows that you are good and that you would help him. Correct? Because he knows that you are a generous person who would be willing to help, even if it's at midnight, one, two in the morning. Right? That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, if a, a, a friend knocks at the door at midnight, it's because he knows that the person inside the house would be willing to help. Otherwise, he would never knock. You see? And Jesus says, because he might not rise just because he has a need, but he will rise because of his boldness. That he had confidence enough in him to come at midnight and knock and ask for something. So Jesus here is bringing a truth. He's telling the disciples, never be afraid to knock at God's door. No matter when, what time it is, whatever, for what, whatever reason it is. Never be afraid to approach the Father for a need. And he says, if the friend would knock at the door at midnight and know that that friend, if he is a friend, he can have confidence that he would help. He says, how much more would your heavenly father, you are not just a friend, you are a son. And how much more would the father get up anytime, anywhere, anyhow to, to bring, to give you what you need? what you ask for. And right there you can see it says, ask and you will receive. And you see, there are some translations that have mistranslated that verse. It says, ask and keep on asking. Knock and keep on knocking. Seek and keep on seeking. And those verses troubled me. So I went back into the Greek. And I say, God, if you mean that we've got to ask and keep on asking and keep on asking then I've got to find it in the Greek. And as I looked in the Greek, do you know the grammar for the word ask is imperative. And in the Greek, there is a way to show ask, imperative, or ask, keep on asking, which is progressive. Do you understand progressive means you ask, and you keep on asking, and you keep on asking. And in that verse here, in Luke chapter 11, in Luke chapter 11, verse 9, and I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. It's imperative. There is no rep repetition there. There is no progression and repetition. Jesus never said, ask and keep on asking. He says, you ask once and expect to receive. It will be given. Knock and know that it will be opened. You seek, be sure that you will find. If you really seek, you will find. That's what Jesus... And here Jesus was teaching them about their righteousness. Therefore, we need to ask ourselves, what is righteousness? Because righteousness, understanding our righteousness, is the second pillar of prayer. If you don't understand your righteousness, your prayer life will be shaky. You will always be afraid to approach God. You will never feel like you've done good enough or you're good enough. Why? What is righteousness? 
Anybody knows what righteousness is? Go ahead. Right standing with God. My definition is a legal right to approach the Father without a sense of guilt, shame, condemnation, unworthiness, or a complex of inferiority. Righteousness is a legal right standing with God. It's a legal right to approach the Father, if you will, like Jesus said, with boldness. Proverbs 28 verse 1 says, The righteous are bold as a lion. Why? Because righteousness makes you bold. Righteousness is a legal right. Now, let me say something. Most people think that righteousness is spiritual maturity. Most people think that righteousness is spiritual maturity. Most people think that you grow in righteousness. And you have different levels of righteousness. That you grow in righteousness. Can I say something to you? It might shock you. But you are now as righteous as Jesus Christ. 1 John 4, 17 says, As Jesus is, so are you in this world. Is Jesus righteous? Then you are righteous. Righteousness is not spiritual maturity, but it's a legal right given to you by Jesus himself that gives you the ability to approach God the Father with boldness, without feeling guilty, without shame, with that feeling unworthy, with that condemnation, and with that a complex of inferiority. You see yourself as Jesus. And you know you are righteous as Jesus. You will never be any more righteous when you get to heaven. Silent in this (laughs) Orthodox church tonight. Amen. Amen. And how do you become right? Jesus said, in order to approach the Father, boldness, with confidence, you must understand your righteousness. You must be righteous. But the question is, how do you become righteous? Most people try to act right, to live right, to become righteous. Righteousness does not come by your good behavior. Righteousness is a nature, the nature of God imparted unto you. 2 Corinthians 5.21, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin for us, that you might be made the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. You see, you are not just given righteousness as a free gift, Romans 5, verse 17 through 19. Romans 5, verse 17 through 19 said that righteousness is a free gift given to you at the new birth. When you get born again, you are given righteousness. Even more than that, it's a free gift. Not only are you given righteousness, you are made 
righteous. It is not part of your DNA. You see, when you were born a baby, you were born female or male. That is part of your nature. When you are born again, you are born again righteous. And you will never be any more righteous when you get to heaven or any less righteous. You are now as righteous as you will ever be. Because that righteousness was given to you by Jesus. You were made Christ in you. You were made righteous in your spirit. You see, most of you are looking in the flesh. And in the flesh, you see a problem. But it's in your spirit you were made righteous, identical to Christ. Hallelujah. And that's what the Bible says. Once you understand that you are not only given righteousness, but you are made righteous, you are righteous now, as much righteous as you'll ever be, then what does it do to you? It gives you that freedom, that boldness. All of a sudden, you are no longer afraid to approach the Father. Because you know that when you approach God the Father, God is a spirit, John 4 26, 27, says God is a spirit. And when God looks at you, when you come to him, God is a spirit. And what does he see? He sees you in the spirit. And in the spirit, what does he see? In the spirit, he sees Jesus. In the spirit, he sees righteousness. In the spirit, he sees holiness. In the spirit, he sees perfection. And so, now think a second. You remember in the Old Testament when somebody had sinned, they brought a sacrifice, right? It had to be a lamb with that defect. And when the person brought the lamb, the priest had to inspect it. And God had to inspect the lamb, right? Did God inspect the lamb or did God inspect the person? The lamb. You see, when you come to God, God doesn't inspect you. God inspects the lamb in you. And the lamb, the Christ in you is perfect with that sin. Holy, righteous. And that's what you understand, that righteousness, that it, you are righteous because you are in Christ. And Christ is in you. Then it gives you that boldness that Jesus is talking about to approach the Father at any time of the day, night or day. And to come with confidence. With assurance. And you see, boldness is not arrogance. Boldness is not just understanding who you are and who God is. You're a son. He is your father. And it gives you that liberty, that assurance, that boldness to approach the father any time of the day of night. You see, my husband is a, is a businessman. He has a construction company. And he has an office. And when he closes the door... You know what that means? Nobody gets in. The secretary cannot get in. The employees cannot get in. But does this apply to me? No. no. The door is closed, but you know what I do? I don't even knock. I open the door. I go and, go and talk to him. Why? Why do I have that boldness? Because I have a relationship with him. We have a relationship. He's my husband. 
I'm his wife. And that gives me the boldness. And because God is your father and you are a son, it makes you righteous. And because it makes you righteous, it gives you that boldness with the father. Not arrogance, but that boldness, that confidence. Amen. And that's what Jesus was teaching the disciples. He said, he gave that parable about the friend at midnight. And he said, the friend will get up because of his boldness to give him as much as he needs. And how much more will your heavenly father? You're not just a friend. You are a son. And because you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, it gives you boldness to knock at his door anytime. And so you see, in order to have a successful prayer life, you must know that you are the righteousness of God. Because what a lack of knowing your righteousness, what will it do? It will make you feel guilty, condemned, unworthy. And you see, religion has told us and painted us that to feel like a sinner saved by grace, to feel like a worm, I'm no good, I'll never be good. And to have that approach with the Father, religion has told us that that was humility. That is false humility. Humility is to see yourself like God sees you and to accept it. You see, to go and approach the Father with that worm mentality, seeing yourself unworthy, inferior, guilty, condemned, will, will rob you of your boldness, will rob you of your relationship with God, and you'll never be able to have a successful prayer life with an unrighteousness mentality. Amen? So you need to understand that. Is it the time? Hallelujah. Glory to God. I love that. I'll finish with that one verse. You know, actually, I'm going to finish with three verses, but I'll say them pretty fast. That's why in this new covenant, Hebrew 10.19, Hebrew 10.19 says that we must have boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. You see, in the Old Testament, the high priest went only once a year into the holiest and not without fear. They were going trembling with a rope attached around his, his ankle. If the sacrifice was not perfect, the judgment would fall. And then he would die right there in the, in the holiest. And then the people would listen and said, we don't hear anything anymore. And so what would they do? They would pull him by the feet, by the rope. So there was always fear to enter into the presence of God. But now the word says, because you have been made the righteousness of God, enter with boldness even into the holiest in the presence of God because the veil has been ripped from top to bottom. You don't have to have fear. You don't have to feel unworthy. Just approach with boldness in God's, the Father's presence. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. Amen? The same thing. Hallelujah. And finally, I love that Peter. 
in Mark, in Matthew 14, verse 28. Matthew 14, verse 28. It's when the disciples were in the boat. And it illustrates that boldness face to face with God. I like Peter because Peter was bold. Amen. And when he saw Jesus walked, what did he say? Jesus, if it is you, bid me to come. Now, what did Jesus say? Peter, you've got the guts to ask me. I'm, I'm only the son of God, don't you know? I dare you want to do what I do. I dare you ask me something like this, Peter. But you see, that's not what God answered. He said, Peter, come. Peter had the boldness to ask for something like that. I want to do, Jesus, what you just did. That's pretty bold, isn't it? But God was pleased. I can just see Jesus with a big smile saying, finally somebody was bold enough to ask me for something like this. Well done, Peter. And then finally, Peter's son, because instead of looking on Jesus, he started to look around and he sunk. But even there, Jesus didn't let him swim or sink. He didn't say, okay, you tried. You see, it's only me that can do. Not you, you can. You see, I was trying to tell you. No. Jesus went immediately and pulled him out of the water. And he said, why did you doubt? Don't you know you could have done the exact same thing I did? You could have walked to the boat, back to the boat, walking on water. And so that's how the Father wants us to approach him. With that type of boldness. Some of us approach him and say, God, I don't dare to ask you for it's too big. No, no, God says, dare to believe big. Dare to ask me for big. Dare to dream. Dare to, to ask for the impossible. God is pleased. Because God knows, we know then that he's a good God. We don't have to be afraid. And we can ask him for the impossible. Ask him for big. To dream big. And God wants, is pleased. And that's what the Jesus was talking about. In your prayer, approach the Father with boldness, confidence. Don't be afraid. Amen. Amen. God bless you all. Amen. You have a good night. Yeah.